which is reminiscent of uh, Victory Games Korea to some extent. It's not reminiscent. It's a direct ripoff. <laughs> um, credited in, fully credited in the design notes. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. During my trip to Consim World Expo in Tempe, Arizona this summer, I interviewed a number of interesting people. This is the fourth of those interviews. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with designer and wargame mogul Roger Miller. We'll discuss the history of Revolution Games and what's in the development pipeline. Roger and Richard Handwith started Revolution Games in 2012. Their first game was Washington's Crossing, followed by my favorite, Cells, in 2013. Most recently, they published Konigsberg and Longstreet Attacks. Their games are well-tested, well-supported, interesting, and priced right in this game market full of inflation of complexity and price. We'll start this interview with a question to Roger about the history of Revolution Games. Well, I started designing games back in when I was in high school, 1977, 78, 79. And I made a few games, and I finally got one that I thought was publishable. And I sent it around to SBI, GDW, Avalon Hill, everybody who was publishers at that time. And uh, they didn't want it. Uh, GDW, Frank Chadwick, wrote me a polite uh, rejection letter, which he says, I must have caught him on a good day. But when that happened, I decided that the only way I was going to be published was if I self-published. I didn't have the money, and I spent years gathering the money because I didn't want a, a desktop copy. I wanted a real war game. And so when I finally gathered the money and polished the game some more, I hired Mark Semenich to do the art and help me with production. And I ran 2,000 copies of my Buena Vista game. At that time, I was called Fifth Column Games. No relation to the company that has that name now. And it sold like 725 copies, lost a little bit of money, not much. And I decided, well, that was interesting. I'll never do that again. And 20 years in the future, 2012, I mean 2010, so 18 years in the future, um, I was going through a bad part in my life. Uh, my wife and I were just getting divorced. And my best friend Richard said, why don't we start a game company again? And he quickly moved out of distance before I could hit him. And I thought, do you know how hard it is to, to design a game, do artwork, production? The market is now full of very good companies producing excellent products. And, of course, there's a lot of money up front. And I thought about it for three days and then decided it was a good idea because it would be a lot cheaper than paying a therapist and going every week. You know, I might as well get something out of my money. And that's the, actually the reason why he did it. He knew I would be depressed and this would be a good outlet for me, a good project. So we started planning 
you know, and doing research, what would be the, you know, what would be the first game that we would publish? And we decided that the Trenton-Princeton campaign had never really been done at an operational level. And so we started making Washington's Crossing. And we also decided that we weren't going to use a pre-order model because as an unknown company trying to collect any numbers of pre-orders would have been years. And I was starting the, the design when I was 50. I didn't have years to, to wait on a pre-order model and, and try to collect it. So um, I emptied my 401k, which was small, and said, okay, my retirement plan will now be a game company, and I'm going to make this work. And we spent 16 months uh, designing and playtesting Washington's Crossing and getting the artwork uh, done by Mark Mahaffey in that case and getting the production set up. Uh, And then we just, in 2012, February, just sort of said with almost no warning, hey, here's a new company and here's our, our first game. And that's how Revolution Games was born. So your catalog now is much bigger than one or two games. Yeah, we've, we've produced from one to three games every year from 2012 till now. And I think it's 17 now. I'm, I'm tired, but I think, it's, I think it's 17 games right now. And we have planned for two more this year, maybe three if we get lucky. And I just retired from my day job last December. And so I'm now paid full time by the game company, which is, I know, rare in this industry. And so hopefully we'll be able to up our production pace a bit. But we'll never, we'll never be a big producer because we don't, we don't operate quite the same way in producing games as other companies. Um, most other companies are dispersed in a bunch of teams of designers, developers, and testers, and it comes to the company for final artwork and production, advertising, and shipping. We do those first steps with the designer and the developer design the game, testers work on it, but then it comes to my desk and my business partner, Richards, and then we play test the heck out of it. So we're more like old school SBI than we are with GMT or other more modern publishers. So a typical game gets 30 more tests with us doing the testing because I want to be certain that anything that we put out is absolutely solid as it can be, as balanced as it can be, and that I'm comfortable that we've, you know, when we put our name on it, that it's a really solid product. So we'll never be able to, if I'm testing every game 30 times, we'll never be able to, um, you know, do something where we're producing two games a month. That's not going to be our. So the vast majority of designers in the industry are freelance designers. How do you find the designers? Do they come to you or do you go to them? Combination of both. Um, and you have to be really quick. The market is incredibly competitive for designs. So, for example, on Stonewall Sword, Herman Lutman uh, sent out emails to a handful of companies saying, are you interested in this design? 
I looked at the rules, the concepts. I took about six hours. That was the evaluation. And I said, I'll do it. And I was one day ahead of another large publisher. <laughs> or that whole history would have been different. Would have been different. And, and probably the follow-on as well, long story. Uh, yes, and of course, now we have a relationship. Right. He's happy with the state of development and art. So recently, the same thing happened with Konigsberg. Konigsberg had been on MMP's pre-order list. Konigsberg was cut from MMP's pre-order list because it had not reached its goal, although it was pretty far along. I had looked at the Three Crowns games, Army Group Narwa, several years before. So I was familiar with the, the system of it. And I emailed Stefan immediately. I said, I'll buy it. I'll buy Narwa. I'll buy Plan West. And uh, I heard again that I was about two days ahead of the competition. So, <laughs> and I'm not always ahead. I turned down one game this year that I probably shouldn't. And now it's being, you know, published by somebody else. I got a first look at it. Thought it might be a little pricey to produce. And I wasn't certain I could get the, the you know, a good enough price out of it to make it worthwhile. And it's a really good game, and I wish I hadn't passed on it. So, you know, it's, it's back and forth. And uh, I made a couple of pitches here at the convention to designers, you know, explaining what we do, how we're different. Um, you know, we don't use the pre-order model, so we're fast. If, if somebody sends a design to us that is pretty complete, um, we've gotten a game out in, in six months from submission to for sale. So we, we can be quick. And, you know, like I said, the, ad, the added play testing and it's not just play testing. We, we work very closely with the designer and tell them, look, we're both going to have input on this project. I'm never going to take a game from somebody and redevelop it totally like some other companies have done. You have to sign off at the end that every change you're happy with. But the flip side is I expect you to compromise as a designer, as a developer, and really listen to our input. If we think this mechanism is overly designed and it's not adding much to the design, I want you to really go back and think about that and take a fresh thought about it. So there's a lot of give and take with our final development and our final testing so that we make certain that game is as, as clean, as elegant, and as polished as it can be, and everybody, testers, artists, publisher, designer, developer, everybody says, good, we're real happy with that project. So those are our two strengths, speed and that testing and development process. What, what stage do you expect the game to be in when you see it? We, you talked about how baked the game is, but what, what are your expectations? Are there, are there things you won't look at? I mean, it seems like there are tons of people with ideas. And then the, the challenge is putting that, the hardest part is executing on the idea, right? Right. Um, it varies with the designer. I don't expect as much from a rookie designer. If I look at a rookie designer's design and I like it, I know we're going to put more work into it. I just accept that as part of the process. If it's a veteran designer like Herman or Mike Ranella 
or Stefan who designed games for Three Crowns, I tell them, don't send me any Dunnigan napkin games, you know, where <laughs> it's just a few notes and you're, you go execute it. Um, but I would say in general, our expectations are pretty industry normal. Um, we, we don't expect the game to come to us perfect, but we don't want to, like I say, start, start from scratch and design the game ourselves. So, but there's some flexibility. Like I say, there's some flexibility in there. If, if I get a really good a game with a really good idea, um, you know, there have been a couple times where I've told designers, I said, okay, whole major systems of this game need some help. And because I have design and development experience, I go in and, and say, you know, I want to pull this whole system out. You'd be better off this. You need, it. You need another phase in here. So yeah, we are willing to do that kind of work. If the, if the basic game has some really good ideas and mechanisms already fleshed out, but if you give me a really ba- a, a game that could have been 20 or 30 years of old mechanics and it's not well well baked, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend the time to fix and develop that. What about the physical box, or not, not the box, but the expectations that you have? For example, you know, the components could be a wide variety. The one extreme is miniatures, uh, and another one, it's, so, so sort of moving back from that, or wood pieces, and then moving back from that, or the counters we're so familiar with, the, the, the chits. And then, and then what about size? Do you have an expectation sure. as to size? Um, won't do minis. Uh Wooden pieces, as long as it wasn't excessive. You know, there's 400 blocks in the box. Sure. Counters, all the time. Cards, fine. But on all of these Revolution games, aims right now for mid-sized games to small. We won't do a monster uh, for a couple of reasons. One, since we're self-funded, although we could now, we have enough money to publish quite a few games in a row without any return on investment, a monster game eats up so much of your, your resources. But more important than that is the time factor. I don't want to have to try to test and develop a four-map 2,000-counter game because it will be all we'll do for one to two years. And our goal is to get people to play our games. We're trying to build our brand by people playing our games and then telling their friend, hey, this is a really cool game. You should try that out. And that means they have to, they have to be short enough to play. They have to be simple enough that we can produce them in a reasonable time. I'm not saying we won't do one sometime when we grow a little bit, but right now that wouldn't be in our interest. So the demographics of board gaming widely defined and then wargaming narrowly defined really quite different right the yes. average age the universe of people to play um, d- does that impact your view on what's marketable and where do you try to fit in that strata of of players well i'm a little bit of a contrarian as far as the stereotype that wargamers are all gray aging um soon to be extinct um, I can tell 
from where our sales come from and the questions on rules we get, we're selling to a good number of younger gamers, many of them who've never played a war game before. Uh, constant threads on Board Game Geek. I'm just getting into war gaming. What game should I play? You will see Revolutions games named there again and again and again in those themes. So we're really aiming to appeal to the hardcore audience, but also to be appealing to the crossover audience, but in a different way than other publishers have done it. We're not going to make, we, we, we would make a, cro a traditional crossover game, maybe that had Euro mechanics with war games. I'm not opposed to those. But we really think you can sell smaller, clever war games straight to a Euro crowd. And that sounds crazy, but I go, the Euro crowd is so much bigger than the war game crowd. I don't have to nail a very high percentage of those. If a couple percentage of them were at all try sells or Pacific Fury or Gazala, many of our games, I do great. So right now, our sales come about 50% from the board game geek crowd, and we can tell that from our advertising. And about 40% from Consim Worlds, say older universe, and about 10% from other sources. And that's changed from 2012. Every year, the board game geek percentage has steadily increased and that audience is much younger much more used to a wide variety of games sure there are many older war gamers on board game geek also but there's that's the by far the younger part of the audience so how do you how do you access them is it banner ads that are accessing these younger people it's the banner ads i, I do banner ad in the war game subdivision um when I started it in 2012 on Board Game Geek, I was almost the only war game company there. Other people have gotten smart and uh, done it now. But I do do banner ads, but a lot of it is just when people start threads, making certain that you engage those threads. So a lot of it is I'm scanning and making certain that our online presence is there. If, if the conversation is going along fine and Revolution Games is getting a lot of mentions, I don't, inter I don't intervene. But if I see any incorrect information, or I see, I, I see an opportunity to say, hey, have you seen this game or that game? You know, I'll post in there. At this point, we have enough customers who really like our stuff that I don't have to even do a lot of that. There's a constant thread. I don't like the word fanboys. I think that implies they're not thinking adults who really like the products. So they're just fans. They're just fans of Revolution Games, and we've earned that respect. They've, they've bought some games. They've played them. They like the quality. They like the game themselves. Right. So they're, they're a much higher probability of buying another game from you than someone who would have had a bad experience. Sure, and they're good spokesmen for our game. So people will go on, and they'll say, you know, how does this game, how does one of our Civil War games compare to Line of Battle? And there'll be an intelligent conversation now with I'm not even involved. And that's, so we've reached that kind of plateau where we can have some of that now, which is really a big deal for us. So Consim World and Board Game Geek are both social media sites. And, and, yes. and some people don't see it that way, but the reality is if you look at what a social media site is, 
It's a gathering of people that exchange ideas and post things and comment on each other and support each other and, and, and argue. Uh, it's, it's the perfect example of social media. There, there are other uh, social media opportunities, right, that, that appeal to a broader audience. Do you, do you see that it's worth the time to work Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? We work Facebook a very little bit. Um, if you'd asked me the question a couple of years ago, I would have said it was a waste of time. Uh, the little experiments we tried were so tiny compared to Board Game Geek and Constant World where those people had already gathered in their natural groups. We also um, advertise on grognard.com, which is not as big as those two, but still a significant source of data and files and traffic of people. A very refined target group for you. Right, exactly. So we'll also do magazine advertising. We've got... Uh, an ad every issue of War Diary. We've got an ad like in the latest battles. I haven't seen the copy of the mag yet, but I know that we do. So there is a Facebook war game group. It, I feel it's, it's growing really fast in the last two years. Over 8,000 But it's gaining at like 70 a week. Right. If you look at the last six months. So it was, it was tiny a short time ago, and it's just... We're still struggling to see how you do a strategy of intelligent posting followed by kitten photos and what I ate for dinner and movie discussion. It's a little less focused and wilder forum than um, constant world board game geek. But, and I haven't even begun to figure Instagram or Twitter. Those seem to me to be ways to keep engaged with the audience you've already achieved rather than bringing in new audience because they rely on people following you. Why would somebody who's never seen your product, doesn't know who you are, follow you? So at our point, we're still more interested in getting to those people who don't know about us. Not that I don't like to engage with my current crowd, but it's more important to, to reach the newer people. Well, you, you do both things, right? You engage with your crowd in one way, and then you also try to promote to people that don't know your business. So what's the best-selling revolution game over the last few years? All-time bestseller is Cells, by far. Um, it's been reprinted three times, and it's going to print again next month. You can get it in English and Japanese now, and it'll be available in Chinese next oh, terrific. month. So it by far is the the star performer and without naming names after it came out several other companies tried to buy it off us and we had a really hard decision right at the beginning because they offered to buy some of the other stuff and we had a decision do we want to be a game company or do we want to be a design studio for for other people and we thought about it a moment and both Richard and I agreed we wanted to be a game company because it's not just about the finances and the job. It's also like being a publisher is a game in itself. There's a separate victory condition for that, and it's fun. And and uh, then you parlayed that success into Gazala, right? So, yeah, the first, I mean, in 2012, Washington Crossing got critical acclaim, but it didn't sell that well. Sells sold better, but we still lost money in 2012, Produced Gazala, Battleaxe, 
in uh, and Karen, those three in Road to Karen, uh, in 2013, and we lost money in 2013. And this is just typical of anybody who wants to start a small business. Be, be ready to not make money for a while. But we didn't lose a lot of money. And by 2014, we started turning a profit. We made Hastings that year, a little game, let our sales from the other titles start to catch up, recharge the bank account. And uh, our second best-selling game of all time is Stonewall Sword. And that came in early 2015. And that was almost an immediate hit. It was really well-received right out of the Herman Lutman design. Herman Lutman design. Rick Barber map. Rick Barber map. Charlie Kibler on the counters. Yes. So that's a, I I think that's a pretty good team to to have. Of course, Stonewall's sword grew into. Thunder in the Ozark, the Pea Ridge game, and now Longstreet Attacks. And this year's releases, Konigsberg and Longstreet Attack, I can't predict their ultimate sales trajectory, but they've both been fantastic. We made a, a big jump this year. The last three months, we have sold as much as our first three years. I mean, it's a tenfold um, increase. And I thought I had made enough long street attacks, and I probably underestimated. I, and I upped my print run a lot, and I... I underestimated them. So do you mind talking about the print runs and what you've done in the various Um, games? So we're the probably like the smallest a mainstream publisher can be. You have to reach a certain point before full-size printing and die cutting and everything makes sense or your unit costs are just too too high. So like Washington's Crossing was 1,250 copies. And all of our games have been between 1,000 and 1,600 copies, although we have reprinted Stonewall Sword, Pacific Fury, and Cells. We usually, I don't like a game to go out of print if it's selling well, so you won't see a gap. The customer never knew it was reprinted. It just flowed seamlessly, because with few titles, I don't want, I don't want to be missing anything that's a good seller at this point. So that's the typical print run, but we've already sold over 700 Longstreet. And it's only been shipped in the last month. So I, I think 1600 is going to be a, an oops, but a pleasant oops to have. Well, the other gauge for me as to how popular a game is with the players is to walk around this convention, Consim World. And I saw three Longstreet attacks out at different points in time in different places. Yeah, and I we had, we had a... a a couple last battles, three Pacific Furies, um, a Washington's Crossing, a Gazala. We're not dominant, but you now walk through the room and we're not invisible. You actually right. see our stuff. And you know, that's, a good pl- that's a good place to be, dude. Right. No, it's, it's a room that's really dominated by the bigger games. Yes. So when you see people playing the smaller games, it's because they love them, they're very interested in them, and, and that's, a, I think, vote... In the, in the affirmative. I, I, that was one of the things that really helped Stonewall Sword. The first year it came out at Consim World, some people had bought it before, and it, I sold a ton at the convention. It was just shocking, even to other bigger publishers. I, and at one point in the middle of that week, I counted seven games going on at the same time. Wow. We were the most played game 
you know, in terms of games, of course, it's a tiny game. It's five, six hours. But I looked around and I go, oh, that's, that's really cool. Right. Yeah, it's got to feel good. One of the things that was interesting to me, and I think one of the benefits of your small size, is that your relationships, your financial relationships with your designers, uh, you, have, you have more flexibility than a big sure. publisher might. So I wondered if you'd talk just a little bit about... No, I don't mind. I give this speech all the time to people who submit designs to me. So you can get paid three ways from Revolution Games. We can buy the design up front, cash, one shot. Um, but if I'm taking all the financial risk, don't expect the, uh, the same money. Two, we'll do a royalty system or, you know, you sell so many sales, you get a, a, a lump sum. It essentially works like a royalty system. So you can get paid by the copy. Or if you're willing to invest money in your own game, you can get share of the profit. And, you know, that all depends on how much money you're willing to put in the game. So several of my designers are in it for the share of the profit. A number of them get royalties for what they, how many they sell. And quite a few others say, no, I just need some cash right now. And they get a payment. So any one of those three systems is um, fine with me. You have your catalog, and we've kind of discussed what's selling well. What's coming up for you? What's the future look like for Revolution Games? So this year, right now, when I get back, I'll be making a playtest kit for Mike Ranella's Arras game. It's not the same as the one he did years ago. It's a new design. We don't even have a, a finalized title for it. Um, so I'm not certain. He has, a, he has a title he likes, but I haven't really thought about it and signed off on it. And he sent me the playtest kit after he and his playtesters have finished it. So that will be one game. It's still Area Impulse, but he says there's a couple new things in it, a couple new twists, so we'll see that. Um, we're going to do the next game from Three Crowns, the Narwa game. Um, original game was called Army Group Narwa. It won't share, it will not have the same title um, because of the way Board Game Geek then lumps games together. And when we redo a game and make significant role changes in all new art, I do not want to be under another publisher's uh, cover and art and all the people see as a game not saying anything negative about the previous publisher. But I want our own. I want our own look. I want to say, oh, that's Revolution Games, not something else. So it may just be called Narwa. I don't know what it's going to be called. But um, there's been a lot of work already done on it. And now uh, I think, I hope, both these games will go to production in October. But we're not really that set on production schedules because we're small and because we're aiming for the best game we can produce if the game's not ready it'll get pushed back that's just just that simple um we don't have much overhead so we don't have to publish or perish we're not on a schedule where we're releasing a game every two weeks and so concerned that something doesn't get out the door those two are pretty far along we have a Washington's Crossing expansion, 1778. It's the Monmouth campaign. It's a 
it'll be played on the same map, so you have to own Washington's Crossing. Uh, it's pretty far along and should be ready early next year. We have a Operation Crusader game using the cells and Gazala system. Uh, it's partway in design. It should be ready early next year. And then we plan to do uh, Plan West, which was the first 10 days of the Polish campaign using the same basic system as Narawa and Konigsberg. And we have the next one in the um, Stonewall Sword, Thunder in the Ozark Longstreet Attack series, which will be first and second uh, Kernstown. So that's all that, you know, is at least pretty pretty far along that I can... So that's a couple years at least oh, of, no. of pipeline. No, huh? no, that's... Oh, that's like... Two games from I always got to count this out. Two games from Mike. Two games from Stefan. One game from Claude. One game from that's six games. I would hope that's no more than a year to a year and a half. Oh, terrific! Because this is now my full time job. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I hope the days of us making one or two games in a year are done. I think four is realistic. Five or six, if they come together. Well, and so I would right. like to be on that pace for a few years, um, and then, when, and then build up from there. But we're not looking for a, a compass style, zoom to, you know, from zero to sixty. But that won't be our, that won't be our example. The challenge for uh, for any small business is capital at that point, right? Is that when you when you, when you move to more games, more prints, more graphics up front. I honestly don't think that would be our issue. Good. Um, we were very conservative. We both worked our day jobs for years, put everything back into the business. Um, I think we have the money to speed up, I, speed up our production schedule a lot. We don't have the time. We don't have the, we don't have the network of volunteers like a big company like GMT does. You know, so that. That's more what we're building over time than it is just a financial uh, situation. I mean, I could write checks right now and publish four games, but I don't have four games done. And, you know, I don't have that big of a pipeline of, right. of submissions. So, um, so, yeah, I don't think the money would be the, the issue. So one of the, I was curious to how much of your business um, – how the balance is between domestic and international and, and, and it, does international mean Europe or is it, does it vary? You mentioned uh, converting so, cells into different languages. Compared to other companies, we sell a very high percentage internationally, more than some of the other big companies who mostly do box games. And part of it is our shipping. Mm -hmm. We're mostly Ziploc games. You can get them around the world at a much easier rate. And our prices are lower in general, smaller games in Ziploc. Uh, so about 35% of our sales are outside the United States. And the, it's mostly um, European and Canada, obviously. Canada and France are probably about equal. Germany, the United Kingdom are right behind France 
Italy and Spain are a notch behind that. Japan doesn't have that many English speakers who could handle war game rules. We do sell to Japan. Uh, but it's not a big... There we mostly do license deals where Japanese publishers publish our games in Japanese so they can reach a, a, a real audience. We do sell, sell a handful of games in English in Japan. And the same thing for China. A handful of games in China or Hong Kong in English. But it's really the licensing for the Chinese versions that's the big deal. How does the licensing agreement work in China or Japan? Well, um, they'll offer you a certain amount of money for the rights to your game to be published only in their language. And I'm trying to figure what else to say about it. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. Right. So it's a, fixed, it's a fixed amount regardless of the sales volume? No. That's the one thing I was trying to struggle time to Time period? Of. No. It is per a print run. So they will tell you, we want to pay this much money for a print run of 1,000 games, 800 games, 1,500 games. So that's the last part of the equation. So we think of it, when we get paid, we think of it as, oh, I'm getting $2 a game for selling this game you know, to China. Uh, and, for, and they're taking all the cost, of course. They're producing it entirely. And then we're getting a, a feedback for that. So, Roger, I'd like to ask a few informal questions. Uh, and, and the first, what kind of music do you listen to? Well, my day job for 32 years was in transportation. And most of it was as a delivery driver. So if you're spending 8 to 12 hours a day in a delivery van, you listen to all music. <laughs> or I, podcasts. I listen to, yes, 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 or or news, or book reviews, or anything. So I have listened to Cambodian pop bands, Afrobeat music, gospel, Christian contemporary, country, pop, anything. There is not a genre of music that I don't listen to. So what about movies, TV, anything you've watched recently that made a mark? Uh, TV, I pulled the plug on cable years ago. I don't watch TV. If I'm in a bar or someplace and they've got sports on, I'll watch that. I'm a big sports fan. I miss, I miss baseball, basketball, and football. But I can watch that at friends or restaurants or bars. Uh, it's the only thing I miss. I, I don't watch. I never, I never watched much network TV anyway, um, I wanted to spend time on games and other things, so I just said, I don't need that hundred-plus-dollar bill, cable bill a month. Goodbye. So, don't do that. I've never been a big movie goer. Um, I will go to the theater. I like, I like the Star Wars movies. I, I like science fiction in general. Um, in books, I'll read science fiction or history um, are my two my two areas there. Well, give me, what about books? Give me some examples, some, some specifics of books that you've read recently. That Well, well recently um, I read of The Expanse, that sci-fi series. And I read some other books. I don't even remember which were p- 
parody Star Trek universe, and they were hysterical. And then in history, I'm, I'm reading right now a book called Fatal Sunday, which is an in-depth treatment of the Monmouth campaign. And that obviously ties right into the, the current game design um, work I'm doing. And I'm certain uh, when I start the 1940 game here, I'm going to go back to my in-house library and go, okay, do I have anything that's on the subject? Because I don't really remember. Like most war gamers, I've got piles of books. I don't even remember a lot of times what I bought or what I have. So the first thing I do is dig in my own stuff. And oftentimes I find the resources I need, or at least a lot of them right there. And if I don't have that, then I go hunting and purchasing. So I know when I get back, that's going to be one of the the first things is to find some good source for that and probably for Narwa also. So there'll be some more book buying coming up real quick. So uh, what about, um, I, I can't imagine you have a lot of time to play other people's games, but, but what, what, are the, what are the most recent games you've played? What have you, what's made a mark? Well, I don't have a lot of time, but I do play other people's stuff. Sometimes play testing other people's stuff. Uh, I will test other companies' stuff and products because I, I enjoy being exposed to designs and designers. So like Legion's Din Bin Fu game, I'm, I'm in there as a playtest credit because I enjoy Kim's designs and I wanted to really play it. And it's a spectacular game. It's not a simple game, but I think it is the definitive treatment of the battle it would hard for me to imagine how anybody could top it. It's just an amazing game. Also, Enemy Actions Ardennes by John Butterfield. It's, in my opinion, it's one of the top ten games ever made, hands down. I only play it two-player, and it's still got two solo games. I like it so much two-player, I solo the two-player game. <laughs> and I play it every chance I get. So last year at Consim World... I playtested with John the next one in that designed the Enemy Actions Kharkov game. I played it with John, and he beat the crap out of me like he always does at any game we play. He beats me at my own designs. He beats the crap out of me at cells. Um, so I playtested that, and then it was late in the convention. I'd done my thing, and some other people wanted to play Enemy Actions Ardennes, as they asked me to teach them. I taught them, and then some other people said, oh, I've always wanted to play that game. Can you teach them? Pretty soon I had two games that I'm teaching, and a rules question came up, and I didn't know it instantly. And I thought about it a moment, and I go, John Butterfield is sitting six feet in back of me. <laughs> and I go to him, and I go, John, why am I answering these rule questions and teaching your game? He goes, you're doing a great job of it. Keep on doing it. And we all, <laughs> we all laughed, so... That was a really um, good product. Um, I'm really impressed by a lot of the games that Hexasim has been putting out. They turn out physically outstanding products. And I think innovative designs. I sometimes find an occasional problem with the rule, but I think they're well above um, the average game. Uh, Multi-man, GMT, they're going to produce, you know, solid games all the, all the time. And I usually will pick up and play, you know, the occasional game 
from them just like you know just like any anybody else but i might buy six games a year and play about that play about that much that's about my i gotta tell you i think that's pretty good given the amount of development work that you have to do so yeah well it's, it's also a break you know so that you you're not thinking about if you've hit a wall in design or development and you can't figure out for a while well then go play something right. you know play something fun and and Dinbin Fu and Enemy Action or Dens are both games that, that we know have kind of pushed the envelope for war games in many ways. So uh, I think yeah, that's, that's good kind of where I'm, I'm kind of where I'm looking, although all Wheel Out Classics, I love uh, Victory Games Korea. It's also in my list of top ten games of all time. Right. And my copy is so worn that uh, I'm pleased to hear that Compass is reprinting it. Right. Even though some other unnamed company tried to do that also. But anyway. <laughs> we'll leave them unnamed. Yeah, yeah. We'll leave them unnamed. But um, I'm happy to hear that right. Korea is going to get uh, reprinted. And <laughs> so I can now have an updated copy rather than my falling apart uh, copy <laughs> to play. So, yeah, I've, I'll also play old ones. But in general, I'll, I'll tend toward... Um, Games that were innovative on the design edge, you know, and that's not saying anything against a lot of other games. It's just I have limited time, and so sure. I'm going to try to choose something that really challenges me and is really interesting that way. Well, Roger, I'm sorry Richard couldn't be here. We've talked about doing an interview, and it just so happened you and I were together, so we knocked it out. But tell Richard we'll we'll get him next time and look for. Yeah, to and he's a, to he say. has a different, you know, a different interest, different perspective on on games a little bit. And just to give you one idea. I don't handle anything with our website. I don't handle anything electronic at all. I'm still back in scrawling maps on Zaki hex paper and using SBI counters that I bought in bulk when they went out of business. I am an old school designer and all of our playtest stuff is created by Richard in Illustrator and done that way. Our websites are maintained by him. Our store is maintained by him. Our shipping is, is, is done by him. So I want to give him on the record, a lot of credit. Um, we're a good team because our strengths and weaknesses don't overlap much. And he's a he's a heck of a playtester also. A really thoughtful playtester who will play a game four or five times giving little input and then say one really profound thing. And so I'll give him credit for, give two people credit. So the, there's event shits in my game Cells and Gazala that are similar to what Herman was working on simultaneously in Stonewall Sword. Well, those event shits that add so much to the game are Richard's idea, not Roger the designer. And we just played Hexasims, Liberty Roads, and their shits work different. But he was saying, he just told me, he said, the game is really solid, but it needs something else interesting in it. He says, couldn't you do something like what was done in Liberty Roads? And I told him, no, it would have to be completely different. But then I thought about it a couple of days, and then I did come up with a way 
of doing some completely different. So that's one of his key roles is at the critical time coming up with, you know, a really good idea. So even though my name is on the cover as designer, much of the credit for that comes from that one one big idea. So Sounds like a great team. And, and uh, you know, I'll tell you that Cells and Gazala are on my list of top games. I, I Certainly for punch for price, there's nothing better. Those games are uh, creating an interesting tension that continues the the use of the chit-pull system and, as you talked about, random events, and uh, also the fact that you can attack, but you can move, and it's a trade-off between the two, which is reminiscent of uh, Victory Games Korea to some extent. And it's not reminiscent. It's a direct rip-off. <laughs> um, credited in, fully credited in the design notes. I took the movement combat system where it's combined in thirds of movement trading for a die roll modifier directly from right. Korea by Joe Balkowski. I then merged the chip pull system on top of that and then Richard helped add the idea of some events which like I said I don't really I call them random but they're not. They're really just other things you're simulating like so replacements are a chit rather than a step in the sequence of play. Right. The airstrike is a chit that comes up at a random time rather than having an air phase. Rather than coming in at a phase that's so predictable, right? Right. So, so that is actually original to me. So I'm not a totally original designer. Washington's Crossing is not totally original. Right. Uh, so if I'm designing a game, I'm definitely working with what other people have done in the hobby before right. and then trying to add my own creativity. Right. Good. Well, that, I think that's the way it works, right? It is, there are very few new ideas. Once again, pass my regards to Richard. I miss him. Wish he were here. We'll do it again another time uh, as your catalog grows and talk about what's hot, and we'll include Richard in the conversation. Uh, but I appreciate you taking the time. And as I said, I, your games are top-notch. The quality of the games uh, visually and graphically is very high, uh, but most importantly, they're fun games to play, and I think you guys have done a terrific job in putting together a catalog that everyone should consider that's, in, that's playing these sorts of conflict games. So thanks again, and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you, Harold, for having me on. So that's a wrap for this podcast. Thank you for listening. It would be greatly beneficial to me if you would post a review on iTunes. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Raleigh, North Carolina-based band Funkaponya for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Roger Miller. And that's it for me. As always, I'm a direct ripoff, but fully credited in the designer notes. And I'll be back soon. <laughs>